you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. The impetus for this episode was a news article on the events that was posted by Robert Schneck and his Historian of the Strange Facebook group. If you're on Facebook and interested in the sorts of things I cover on the show, check it out. Anyway, I thought it was interesting, and certainly it was something that I hadn't heard of before. So I started researching it and was expecting to find a story that basically went nowhere, as you often find in old newspapers. But I was pleasantly surprised to find that these were extremely well-documented cases. So without any further ado, this is episode 53 the Oklahoma Earless Murders. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. It was July 27, 1907. Engine number 439 of the St. Louis and San Francisco Railroad Line, otherwise known merely as the Frisco, was sidetracked at the rail yards just outside Chickasha, Oklahoma. Bound from Ashland, Arkansas to Aldous, Oklahoma, the train was hauling a shipment of lumber, specifically railroad ties, to be used in some railroad construction going on near Aldous. The train had passed through Oklahoma City at about 5 o'clock that afternoon. Around 9.30 p.m., brakeman W.W. Andrews was going over the boxcars, checking for hobos. He found that the seal of one of the cars was broken open. Within, lying face down on a pile of railroad ties, was the body of a man. Blood was splashed over the walls and wooden beams, showing that a terrible struggle took place before the victim gave up his life as it was said in the Chickasha Journal. As Andrews was later to describe the discovery of the body, I saw a car with the end open, and I climbed up and flashed my lantern in, and I didn't see anyone in the car. And I got in and crawled back over the ties and discovered a man lying there with his face down on the ties. I went up to him and touched him on the side and called to him to wake up and asked him where he was going. He made no reply, and I caught him by the hair on the back portion of his head, and discovered that his neck seemed to be stiff, and I looked then and saw blood on the tie where it had run down from him, and I knew he was dead. I thought there might be someone in the car further on, and I looked backwards toward the rear end, but saw no one. And I got out and went to the depot platform and reported what I had seen. Andrews notified another brakeman named R.H. Hayes, and Hayes Andrews, and the train's conductor, a man named Sam Kelsey, went to the car and confirmed that the man was dead. Hayes later told investigators 
that Andrew said to him that hobos must have done it. Foreman of the freight depot, Lane Moore, notified the police, and it was he, as well as Undertaker Sid Anderson, and two unnamed police officers, who removed the body to the Claycomb and Anderson mortuary in town. The train disconnected the boxcar and traveled onward. The man had been shot five times with a 38 caliber gun, four times just over the heart and once in the neck. Also, the man's nose was bruised by a heavy blow, as it was said at the time anyway, though as he was face down on, the t- on timber, I suppose it could just as easily have been inflicted by falling upon his face. He also had a large gash on his cheek, and oddest of all, his ears had been cut off, resulting in the blood which covered his face and soaked his upper body. One ear had been found lying on the railroad ties, and the other was lying on the dead man's head. He was dressed in a blue work shirt, a green vest, two pairs of overalls, and a white hat. His pants pockets were cut open, leading to a theory that robbery was a likely motive. The pocket of his vest, however, contained five photographs, one apparently of himself, a streetcar ticket from Enid, and a small bit of tobacco. The man was approximately 35 to 40 years of age, 6 feet tall, and 165 pounds, with a high forehead and dark curly hair. Rigor mortis had not yet set in, leading to the conclusion that the man had not had likely not been dead for more than three hours, meaning he probably had died after the train left Oklahoma City. United States Marshal E.S. Burney issued subpoenas for the entire crew of the train. Lawton Police Officers Hetherington and Gallup delivered the subpoenas when engine number 439 arrived there, and four men, Lee Connor, Claude Haynes, George Witch, and Charles Ellison, were acting suspiciously and were arrested. However, the police said they found it unlikely that either Ellison or Witch had anything to do with the murder, though they said that Connor and Haynes were both extremely evasive in their answers as to their names or places of origin. Also arrested was W.W. Andrews, the brakeman who had discovered the body. He had inexplicably left the train in Lawton, which was conveyed to a railroad detective named Thompson by the conductor, Sam Kelsey. Andrews was apprehended several hours later as he walked back toward the depot. He later explained that his departure was because he had heard they would be tied up there for ten hours and went uptown and met a friend and they got to drinking. The crew being questioned, both R.H. Hayes and Fireman L.E. Wham, said they heard no gunshots that evening. The car where the body was discovered was only the fourth back from the engine, and both men were in the engine at the time, so they should have heard something had there been any sound. Hayes said also that he thought he saw a man jump onto the front section of the train somewhere near Tuttle. Police had enlargements made of the small photographs that the man had in his vest pocket. Several hundred visitors came to visit the body at the undertaker's the next day, in an attempt to identify the man. A man from Enid came to Chickasha to see the body and said that it was an employee of a transfer company there, and he gave the police the name of a boarding house in Enid where, he said, the dead man lived. Other visitors claimed the man had been employed at the waterworks in Tulsa, or was the brother of a woman living in Lawton. A Mrs. W.S. Harrison came and identified the body as that of her brother, Ollie Little, 
who was a resident of Isabel, Kansas. Upon further consideration, however, she felt that while the body resembled her brother on a superficial level, her earlier identification was incorrect. On September 4th, Ollie Little's mother said that her son was at that time living in Arizona. The most prominent identification of the body, however, was that it was that of a man named Earl Crawford, who was from Tuttle. Recall Hayes' statement that he had seen a man hop the train near that town. This identification had been made on July 29th by R.P. Brown and John Hughes, two friends of Crawford's who were in Chekhoshe viewing the body. Earl Crawford was employed at a livery stable run by H.W. Duckwall. He and his wife lived on the farm owned by Alger Milton. It was said that while here, according to the Tuttle Times, it is claimed that his wife and some of the men of that farm were becoming too intimate, and when accosted about the affair by her husband, some hard words were used which led to blows. Mrs. Crawford went before a judge on July 24th in the company of O.B. Hathaway and asked that a warrant be issued for her husband on the grounds of abuse. The warrant was refused, which led to a final confrontation, after which Crawford packed a bag and left his wife. He left in a carriage driven by Lavada and Lynn Keith, two other local men, who later told authorities he didn't know that the warrant had been refused and was fleeing arrest. They claimed to have left him at the train station in Mustang. Alger Melton, owner of the farm, was to later claim to have seen Crawford walking along the railroad tracks toward Oklahoma City. The bag of clothes he had packed was later found at the home of the Keiths, who said that he had left it with them and was going to write them for it later. Both Lavada and Lynn Keith, who had purchased a 38 caliber pistol from Alger Melton, as well as O.B. Hathaway, were later arrested. H.W. Duckwall, who owned the stables where Crawford worked, went to Chickasha to view the body, and he too identified it as Earl Crawford on the basis of some scars on the forehead. Mrs. Crawford was also to go view the body, but she was quoted in the Tuttle Times as having said that, should he prove to be such, that he had committed suicide, and that she did not care anything for him anyway. However, on August 6th, W.A. Crawford and G.C. Crawford, Earl's father and brother, came to view the body and stated that it was not him. This was supported a few days later when a telegram arrived from Kansas City asking for the bag of clothing, just as the Keiths said would happen. The charges against them were dropped, and Deputy U.S. Marshal Finley Fryrear went to Kansas City in search of the young man. Although he initially thought that he was there, he later admitted that he had only the word of a young man in town about it. I'm not certain if anything was ever determined for certain about Crawford's whereabouts. After it was embalmed, the body was kept at the mortuary for several years. And with that, we'll move on to the next story. We'll come back to the Chickasha body later. Welcome to Nothing Ever Happens in Canada, and I'm Canadian Girl. Do you like adventures, myths, legends, and learning about some of Canada's greatest moments in history? Well then this is the podcast for you. Join me every two weeks as we travel around Canada, exploring things like mermaids, giants, lost gold mines, 
and we even stop once in a while to observe historical events and people. Come on over to the channel and join the crew by hitting that subscribe button today. You don't want to miss out on our next adventure. A few days after the discovery of the body in the train, on the morning of August 1st, Detective Charles Colt of the Bartell Detective Agency was going to work in Oklahoma City when, at the corner of Hudson Street and Grand Avenue, or today's Hudson Avenue and Grand Boulevard, he discovered a severed human ear. The streetcar tracks ran near the intersection, and though investigators combed the nearby woods, no body was found. Several hours later, two farmers named G.F. Applegate and F.M. McGee were planning to spend the day fishing on West End Lake. The location of the lake can't be determined for certain anymore, but at a spot only 200 feet from the railroad tracks of the Rock Island Company, and easily visible from 10th Street, they discovered another body. West End Lake seems to have been on the property belonging to a C.M. Lessinger, and placing where his property was, the, the lake would seem to be located on what is now the Oklahoma State Fairgrounds. This body also was a man, once more found lying face down, and like the train body, the head area was covered in dried blood. He seemed to have been approximately 25 years of age, was of medium height and weight, and also had the look of a farm laborer. This man had been shot four times, three times in the left side, and once through the arm. One of the shots had shattered a pocket watch that the man had been carrying. Nearby were found a few spent 38 cartridges, the same caliber bullet that had slain the other man. Other than that, the only thing carried by the dead man was a note found in his pocket, a note which read, In the case of accident, please notify my mother, Mrs. Moses Nadro, Seminole, Indian Territory, and my brother, Charles Gunrath, 535 East 63rd Street, Chicago, Walter Wilbur Gunrath. Wilbert Olin Gunrath, his actual name, which begs the question of why a different name was written on the note, had left Chicago on July 20th to go visit his mother and stepfather at Seminole. Gunrath's ears had been severed, again similarly to the train body, and only one ear was found at the site where the body was found. This suggested that the one found earlier that day by Detective Colt may have been his. Obviously, a connection between the two crimes was soon made by investigators, and so it was once again assumed that robbery was the motive for the crime. Sheriff G.W. Garrison said of the perceived connection between the two crimes, I believe that these two men had incurred the enmity of some powerful gang of cutthroats by their actions, and that they were condemned to die. The men who were selected to kill them trailed them here and committed the crime. They cut the ears off both victims because they knew that a crime with such brutal features would be heralded throughout the country. This probably had been agreed upon between them and their principals so that the latter could see by the papers that their agents had performed their work. It was found that on the night of July 31st, D.A. Shriver, who lived just east of where the body had been found, heard several gunshots from the direction of the lake. Also, a woman named Mrs. Warren, who lived near the intersection where the severed ear had been found, said she heard a voice crying out, Don't, around midnight that same night. However, 
A man named D.S. Levy was to later claim that he was walking by the intersection, arguing with a friend that night, and that he was responsible for the cries that she heard. A man by the name of Hawthorne Lallery was arrested after he was found on August 2nd, searching around at the corner where the severed ear was found, though he was later to tell police that he was looking for some money he had dropped in the area. On August 3rd, Mr. and Mrs. Nadreau came to Oklahoma City to view the body, upon which the mother didn't immediately identify the body as her son, though she conceded that the clothing was indeed his. She later conceded that it may have been his, it may have been his body. She claimed that Gunrath had left Seminole because he found a letter dropped by some railway men that detailed plans for a robbery. They told him to leave town or else be killed. However, the stepfather told authorities that the story told by his wife was meant to conceal the real reason that their son had left town, which was that in the company of another young man, he had sexually assaulted the young daughter of a railroad foreman. The foreman and several of his sons beat Gunrath and his companion badly. He didn't know who the other young man had been. Police felt confident about the angle that Gunrath was murdered by the father and brothers of the girl that he had raped. This provided a way to easily link the two murders, and it was theorized that the body found at Chickasha had been Gunrath's accomplice in this seminal assault, and was likewise a victim of the girl's relatives. By September 8th, the railroad foreman, whose name was Henry Anderson, and his sons, George, Mike, and Fred, were arrested in El Reno by U.S. Marshal John Abernathy. Henry Anderson was 53, and he was a large man with a full beard. His sons were all aged 18 to 23. Evidence against the Andersons was circumstantial at best, however. All four had been in Oklahoma City on the days of both murders. At the time of the Chickasha murder, Fred Anderson, also referred to as Royal in many accounts, as well as a man named Charles Scott, were staying at the Columbia Hotel in Oklahoma City. Although a 38 pistol, as well as a knife, a razor, and a broken pocket watch, were found in the effects of the Andersons, and Marshal Abernathy was confident in their guilt, District Attorney R.G. Hayes was far from confident. He is quoted in the Chickasha Daily Express for September 11th as saying, We have been sweating the Andersons all day. We have brought them over here one at a time and questioned them closely. They have had absolutely no chance to communicate with, with each other since they were in jail, and yet they tell exactly the same story, and each one sticks to it. Personally, I am inclined to believe that the wrong men have been arrested. The Andersons were kept in jail for several days, but in the end, District Attorney Hayes was proven right, and they were released. It had been proven that the Andersons had never even lived in Seminole. The 38 bullets found at the site of Gunrath's murder failed to fit the gun found in the Andersons' possession, and though they had a broken pocket watch, which was said to be Gunrath's, Gunrath's pocket watch was still on him when his body was discovered, so that was disproven as well. All four Andersons later filed lawsuits against both John Abernathy and the Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific Railroad for wrongful arrest. Railroad detectives of the Rock Island line had assisted in the initial arrest, which is why they were sued. Eventually, though, the charges were dropped. The Andersons might not have been the people that they sought, but the police had other leads. 
They had also heard a story detailing some connection between Gunrath and some brothel. They had the name of some man who it was claimed had driven both Gunrath and his murderer to where the body was found, and they were also tipped off about a woman who said she quote-unquote had done a full thing Wednesday night. Wednesday, obviously, being the night of the murder. They were also seeking Ed Long, who it was found was the actual railroad foreman at Seminole at the time of Gunrath's alleged assault. Although Long had been found in the vicinity of the town of Holdenville, I'm uncertain whether he was ever spoken to. A young man named Hiram Crowley was arrested in Earlsboro, as well as another railway worker from Seminole named Arthur Brown. There was even an attempt to link the Gunrath murder with the affair of Big Ann Bailey. This woman ran a boarding house in Oklahoma City, and in late August, there had been some sort of fight at the house. A man ended up being shot, and the building was mysteriously burnt to the ground. Four people, including Sadie Ward and Virginia Wallace, were killed in the blaze. It had been alleged that Wilbert Gunrath had been at the house, where he became too friendly with a woman and quarreled with her lover, and was drugged, his ears were cut off, and he was shot. This seems to be some sort of distortion of the actual events at the house, and, besides, he seemed to have been shot where, he, where his body was found. The investigation into the death of Wilbert Gunrath seems to have fizzled out at some point soon after. He's buried in Seminole. One item which appears in several articles about the ear-cutting incidents was that there was a third event, some weeks previously to the body found in the train, which took place near Hobart. In this instance, it was said in one syndicated article, not only were the ears cut off, but also the nose, and a piece was carved from each cheek. This, however, is simply not true. This discovery had taken place on March 17th. Bill Rogers and Porter Rice were duck hunting in the morning, and on their way back to Hobart, Rogers stopped to get a drink from Elk Creek, about three miles outside of town. As he did so, he saw what appeared to be a man's foot coming out of the water beneath a fallen tree. The two duck hunters ran to notify the coroner. Coroner B.F. Burke and Robert Myler pulled the body out of the creek. It was weighed down with a 25-pound iron bar, probably a section of railroad track, that was attached to the body in two places. The body was removed to Burke's mortuary, upon which he determined the body had lain in the creek for quite some time. The man had been shot in the back of the head with a 38 caliber bullet. He had also been bashed over the head, according to a few accounts. A bit of chewing tobacco was still in the man's mouth. Although he was badly decomposed, the man seemed to be about 55 to 60 years of age, about 5 feet 10 inches tall, weighing probably somewhere around 140 pounds in life. He had dark hair and beard, and wore a dark brown suit, a blue flannel shirt, and a vest, a new pair of shoes, and in his pockets were only a comb and a few matches. The appearance of the dead man tallied closely with the general appearance and last reported clothing worn of a John McBreen, who was an ex-soldier from Tennessee who owned some property in the area of Hobart. Around the time he was last seen on March 1st, he had sold his property for $750, and it was thought he had been robbed and thrown in the creek. The body was also tentatively identified as Jim Mason and as Marcus Tyler, who, apparently, were both the same man. 
The body was finally buried in a pauper's grave on June 26th. The body clearly, then, didn't display any of the wounds listed in the initially quoted newspaper account. Neither the ears nor the nose had been cut off, and there weren't gashes in the cheeks. I mean, as the body was considerably decomposed and had been in the water for a number of weeks, it's possible that these apparent injuries had indeed been been noted, but just weren't mentioned as they were probably the result of normal wear and tear that would be expected in the badly decomposed body that had possibly been fed upon by different sorts of water life. On September 1st, 1912, several years after the Oklahoma events, two farm workers named J.H. Lewis and Andrew Fields were also found with ears cut off near the tracks of the St. Louis, Iron Mountain, and Southern Railroad, or St. L-I-M-N-S, often referred to just as the Iron Mountain, near Fort Smith, Arkansas. While a parallel with the Oklahoma slayings of five years before had been, had been drawn, the two men had been struck and killed by a train. As noted, the body that had been discovered in the train car at Chickasha was embalmed and kept at the mortuary for several years. This was to prove fortunate. In 1911, it was again identified, this time as being that of Wesley Andell, a Macomb constable who was convicted along with his deputy Ben Mitchell of murdering the Justice of the Peace, L.P. Ginn. Yandel had paid his bail, getting released from prison, and ran off. Soon afterwards, however, it was positively identified as John Robinette, of Granite, by his brother George. George stated that he had not seen his brother John for over four years, and when he was found to possess a photograph of his brother that matched exactly to one of the photographs carried in the corpse's pocket when it was found in the railroad car nearly five years before, it was pretty well established that's who it was. My brother John left me at Enid, Oklahoma, early in the month of July 1907, with the intention of going to Springfield, Missouri, to visit our sister. Since that time, I have, I have never seen or heard of him. He disappeared completely. He was 25 years old and a common laborer by trade. I have heard of the unidentified dead man at Chickasha, but I never connected him with my brother until I saw the picture in the paper. I do not read a great deal, and therefore never saw any of the accounts of the happening at the time the body was discovered. My brother had no enemies in Oklahoma. He was a sober, industrious fellow, and never had trouble with anyone. The motive of the crime is a complete mystery to me. The undertaker said he thought there was no doubt as to the body's being John Robinette. George was allowed to claim the body, and it is buried today in Granite City Cemetery. So what happened to these two men? In the case of John Robinette, it's interesting that his brother claimed that he had $30 on him when he left him in Enid. $30 which wasn't present on his body when it was found. This backs up the police theory of robbery as a motive. It should be noted that contemporary accounts claim that George Witch, one of the five railwaymen arrested early on, had 2360 on him when he was arrested. But as to Wilbert Gunrath, I do think the story about his having left Seminole because of the sexual assault and possibly having been killed by relatives of the victim was a plausible story, or at least the most plausible of all hypothetical leads. In that regard, I suppose that Ed, Ed Long and Arthur Brown should have been more seriously sought. As I said, it doesn't seem that either man was ever actually questioned. 
The ear cutting is more problematic. The cutting off of ears was usually a punishment, particularly for thievery. It also seems to have been fairly often used as a method of torture as well. I suppose this is why I find the sexual assault theory plausible in the case of Gunrath. I, I feel like if it was done, he was probably being punished for something. I did find in articles I read during the research for this episode that hobos riding in boxcars did occasionally note such injuries, getting their ears torn off when the train pulled into rail yards when they were jostled about, particularly in train cars that were carrying freight, as Robinette's was. Unlikely as it might seem, I suppose it's possible that the severing of the ears was completely, inde was completely independent and not actually connected to the murder at all. But overall, I don't think these two crimes are connected in any way. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found on the show in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash forgdark. That's F-O-R-G. D-A-R-K. And I apologize for not getting any <laughs> Patreon episodes or anything put on there. Um, I'm still actually kind of thinking about what I want to do. So, I apologize for that. So, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.